converse or like in outside information. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Look at James. We're still here. We're 13 verses done. We're working on verse 14 tonight. God's the author. James is the writer. 45 to 50 AD. And the diaspora, those scattered from Jerusalem. Feel like you got that part yet? So if you were to be asked by someone on the street who wrote the book of James, what would you say? God. There you go. God wrote it. James penned it. Unless they're going to be like one of those literalists that says, well, writing incurs that you actually put pen to paper or instrument to paper. See rabbit trails already. James deals with one topic, true spirituality, in which he shows, or which he shows in evidences of faith in action, self-control, unselfishness, generosity, and impartiality and patience, and then submission to God through prayer. We are still on faith in action, for the record. And I should be highlighting this for you, but there's a verse or two coming down later that actually shows this a little more, so I'm kind of holding on to that. So if you think that I'm just making this slide up, I'm not. It actually is showing faith in action, which, remember, faith, again, is that dependency that produces results. Uh, so we know the mechanics and the definition of what it means to be truly spiritual through the book of James. Review of pisteos, which means faith. Uh, actually, it's been translated as faith. It means complete dependency. It's feminine, meaning based on response. So our dependencies are based upon responses to our evaluation of data, whether it's true or right or valuable or beneficial or enjoyable, whatever criteria we use in our evaluation process, which is why our evaluation process needs to be um, dictated by God, not by ourselves. That comes down to a godly worldview, a human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint, all those things. We have to change the way we think in order for our evaluation process to produce proper um, information for us to depend upon. <clears throat> Faith identifies a relationship between two or more objects or persons in which one of the objects or persons is completely dependent upon the other for something or action. Sitting in a chair. Model of humanity is God the Father initiates, mankind responds. Jesus showed this while he was on earth as he claims a number of times that he did nothing on his own initiative uh, but what the Father gave him that's what he has done and that he laid aside his natural rights and privileges as God in Philippians chapter 2 so that he could take on the form of a man and become a bond slave. And a bond slave is one who willingly gives up their own will for a master to tell them what to do. Human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint is sight-based. Divine viewpoint is faith-based. And they're both processes of thought or manners of thinking that is based upon either dependence upon spiritual truth, which is divine viewpoint, or data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this human world system. What we see and what we interact with in the physical laws of physics of this world and with the political realm and with the civil realm, all these different areas in which we interact in the world um, <clears throat> are to actually be viewed from divine viewpoint, but typically are human viewpoint analyzed. The faith rest technique is the act of relying upon God and his promises and doctrines through faith during circumstances which are humanly difficult or trying. The difference between humanly and divinely, again, humanly is that focus of human viewpoint. One, a situation in which humans would say this is a difficult thing to go through. But yet, when you're dependent upon God, you could actually have peace that passes all understanding, which is defined that way because humanly it makes no sense to have peace when you're about to be shot or that kind of a thing. This is an ability that believers are to develop and practice. It requires knowledge of God's promises and application of Bible doctrine in faith. Um, now, in order to actually depend upon things in faith, we have to be in our proper relationship with God. 
because the command of Scripture is to implement these things through complete dependency within our relationship with God. So the promises of God and the Bible doctrine alone, don't do it. That's just knowledge. We have to be in a right relationship with God depending upon those things. Now, some of those things, like 1 John 1, 9, and teach us to confess our sin, produces us, or is reflecting of an attitude that is willing to be now back in fellowship with God and confessing our sin and agreeing with Him on what it is. So the data isn't the important part. It's what we do with it. And it has to be used within our relationship with God. Those have to work together. <clears throat> Anything less than that is sin. The faith rest technique allows the believer to rest in faith upon God because of his promises and doctrines, despite the degree of difficulty of his circumstances. That one's pretty self-explanatory, even though, humanly, it doesn't really sit well with us. But the design of the faith rest technique is to allow us to go through human, humanly difficult things without blinking or batting an eyelash. Pyrosmois means something which attempts to learn the nature or character of something through evaluation. And in that sense, test, which is what the English translators have translated into, is a good summary of the idea. It's your testing to identify the character or of nature or the um, purity of a, an object, whether it's alloyed with another object or whether it's impure, having a, another object having infiltrated its character. The understanding of pyrosmois is that of a circumstance which tests an individual's resolve, nature, or character in an attempt to discover of what it is made or what it is made of. Tonight we're looking at trial versus temptation part two, which is James 1.14. And it says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. We're going to get about halfway through this verse tonight. Just a disclaimer and, and forewarning. What? Just, just about, yeah. <clears throat> Last week, we identified that God is not the source of things which attempt to learn or prove our character through evaluation. Now, remember the difference between trial and temptation. When we think temptation, typically we think the enticement to do wrong or the enticement to sin, um, tempting to do something which you are morally or culturally or civilly opposed to. That's not the word that's used there. We have the same word we've used and James is used consistently in chapter 1, pyrosma, or pyrosmos, or pyrodzo, which means trial. And again, it's that thing which attempts to learn the nature or character of something. So we're talking about that test, or the testing. <clears throat> so we identified last week that God is not the source of tests or trials. Uh, they don't come from Him. His character doesn't allow, that to, doesn't allow Him to be that source. Um, he does allow them and works them out for our good, and we know that we can have joy through them because of God's word and promise that it actually produces spiritual maturity within us. So whether there are circumstances we encounter or antagonistic fronts or attacks aimed at undermining our dependence upon God and his word, there are only two other sources, arguably, besides the already excluded God of the universe from which these trials can come. Okay, If not the God of the universe, then what? Number one, Satan and company. Number two, humanity. Those are the major personality players we have. We've got God as a person, we've got Satan and company as persons, and we've got humanity as persons. Not in the sense of physical man, but in the sense of all these things, in the sense of personalities um, that interact and relate to each other. The arguable third source could be angels. <clears throat> However, Scripture doesn't give any plausibility to that, and given the angels' re relationship with God, and I'll clarify something real quick on my term with angels, Given their relationship structure to God, they can only do what he says. 
um, in obedience to him. And if they choose not to, then it's not because God's directed them to do that. Angels do have free will. Um, they do have the choice to obey or disobey. Their system is not judged based on righteousness or sin. Their system is based on obedience or disobedience. Um, I don't know personally whether angels can sin right now or not. I don't think it's a factor, but when I'm defining angels, I'm talking about the two-thirds that remain in God's servitude. Um, that's my clarification. Right. They would have crossed that line and become the opposite side. So their structure, the relationship structure they have with God means that they're doing his bidding. So if angels, in the sense of the two-thirds that are in service to God, are part of this process, then it's as if God himself is because the command comes from him to do what they are told. So we really have two major players left, Satan and company and humanity. Now Satan, again, is um, an angel that God created and who was lifted up in his pride and said he will make himself like the Most High. God cast him down to earth. I believe the Bible teaches. There's speculation on that. Um, I, I think in the Hebrew it's pretty clear. And he took a third of angels with him. Uh, I think pretty much across the board, conservative scholars identify that as no other option except for the, the third um, of angels to be now demons as we know them. So when I use the term angels, I'm referring to the two-thirds that are still in obedience and service to God. When I turn, use the term Satan and company, I'm referring to those who rebelled. So Satan and hit the third that he um, convinced to go with him. Then humanity, obviously humans, um, could be the source of temptation. Source option number one, Satan and company. 1 Peter 5, 8, and these verses are just some evidences from which we understand that Satan is a tempter and that Satan and company actually participate in this process. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. <clears throat> Notice how it, says, how it says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. Satan is not omnipresent. A lot of times we tend to attribute some of the qualities of God to Satan because we place him in almost that kind of value. And I think that's the kind of deception that he's led this world system into thinking. He is limited to a specific place at a specific time. He is a, a spiritual being that has some spiritual form that cannot just be at all places at all times. Okay, <clears throat> It's not directly saying that he is that, but by giving us the concept that he prowls around like a roaring lion, it's identifying that he is in a specific location at one, one time. Um, demons and angels the same thing the only one that is in all places at all times is God Luke 4 1 to 2 Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil um, that is Satan uh, it wasn't some person or Judas or um, anyone other than Satan the accuser um, no he was led around by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness oh. for 40 days, and in those in that time, he was being tempted by the devil. <clears throat> so yeah, the Spirit was not the devil. Spirit is never the devil. Yeah, but I was confused. Okay, source option number two, humanity. James 1, 14 and 15, the verses we're currently studying, would kind of indicate that there's some role humanity plays. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, these again are our options. 
that people have assigned to the source of temptation and that theologically people assigned to the source of temptation. I am not saying that these are the sources of temptation. We haven't proved that through scripture yet. Yet? We haven't proved whether they are or not yet. Yet. We, have, we haven't studied that. And then 1 Corinthians 8 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is a verse I have always had a hard time with. Just the concept that our liberty we have in grace can be responsible for someone else's sin because of their lack of spiritual growth seems to me to be righteously placed upon them for responsibility, not on us. I haven't studied it. I haven't studied it to harmonize these yet. But it's never sat well with me because it almost makes it where we're responsible for their sin rather than they are responsible for their sin. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying it's never sat well with me in that sense. Um, but there is, in, in contextually in verse 8 and, and 10 in 1 Corinthians, there is some, something to be said about being sensitive to the spiritual maturity of others around you so that you don't end up leading them into a place of sin where they are responsible for their sin. Um, and then you would be responsible for leading them into it. And I think that's what it's getting at. I just don't know that I like the wording in English, so that may just be all it is. But <clears throat> that's a side note, rabbit trail. No, no charge for that. So through James 1.14, we can identify the source of temptation, and in doing so, identify the mechanical process of temptation. Now, this is huge. If we want to overcome temptation, and we're commanded to, if we actually want to be able to do this, we have to know how temptation works. So to know how temptation works means that we can stop the process as it's happening. This will create the necessary understanding in order to effectively stop the process of, uh, process of temptation from continuing once it's started and therefore nullify its production of sin in our lives. We, temptation is not sin. Temptation is to get you to sin, to get you to miss the mark, to do something that God says is wrong or unrighteous. But being tempted alone isn't sin. What you do with it is. <clears throat> If we can stop the process of temptation by knowing which part of the process we're in and knowing which part we may play, then we nullify its production of sin in our lives with our own free will. Okay, verse 14. Ecostos de pirazo, but each one is tempted. The process of, of temptation is introduced by Jesus through the phrase, each one is tempted. Immediately following this introduction, James identifies the mechanical process which explains how temptation occurs given the necessary components needed for temptation, as well as the order of operations of temptation. So we will learn in the rest of this verse the components necessary for temptation, and then the operation and the order in which temptation operates. Was there a question? Was there a heresy? I thought, thought I saw a hand go up. No. Okay. Ecostos de Pirazzo? What? Yeah, after a while, this will all start looking Englishly. Englishy. I'm not sure you can adverbialize English. Ecostos is a substantive adjective which identifies the subject of James's statement. So, what that basically is saying that ecostos is the subject of the Greek sentence here, of James's statement. Ecostos. It literally means each, and it's in the sense of each individual part of a larger whole. So each one of us is studying the book of James when we're at Ginnemite. The larger whole is the group of Ginnemites, 
and each one of us makes up a ginnamite, okay? So the focus changes from being the entire group is studying to each individual is studying the book of James. So the emphasis is on the, the individual part of the larger whole. And that's why we get that concept of each one, and there has to be a group implied. Each one out of group. That's the accurate understanding of a costos. Because a costos deals with each individual part of a larger whole, it creates a category or group wherein each individual part is categorized. This is what I said the last part of that last slide. Because a costos deals with an individual part of a larger whole, it it has to have a larger whole for which that or in that for that individual part to be within. Okay, so there has to be a group. There has to be a category. That's all that is saying, is that a costos creates a category of group wherein each individual part is categorized within that group. For example, the statement's a group of persons versus a group of people. <clears throat> a group of persons is typically grammatically disfavored. It just, it's not good. But what it does say is that there's a group of individual people individual persons that have personalities and different character traits versus the phrase a group of people which says there's different humans and they're all classified as humans or people rather than persons, individual beings with individual unique characteristics. <clears throat> if you catch me using that phrase a group of persons or talking about persons instead of people, that's what I'm trying to emphasize and that's directly because of the study of the Greek infiltrating my English syntax. The Bible does this in a number of areas to emphasize the individual unique characteristics of each human or each item in that larger group. <clears throat> the difference, even though a group of persons is disfavored in English, between the two phrases highlights the use of Acostas by James, who is identifying not the group wherein many individuals are located, but rather the distinct individuals and the uniqueness of the individuals within that group. It's not just one stick that's always the same. It's one stick that's tall, one stick that's short. It's different people, different characteristics, different individuals. <clears throat> Parazite is not unfamiliar to our study, and James has used it on a consistent basis. It comes from parazo, which is the verb form that means to an attempt to learn the character of an object through evaluation. Um, this is how they translate attempted versus how they translated trial. A trial is something that attempts to learn the character. A temptation is something that attempts to learn the character. So in other words, the temptation is the trial, but the trial is not the temptation. It's just a It's a verb-noun difference. That's all it is. <clears throat> I will use the word test or trial instead of tempted um, as I consciously was able to because tempted carries a different connotation to our, us in our minds. We have that process of being enticed and drawn out, which comes up later, and we'll see a word that works better for tempted um, next time we get around to our, our session. We don't actually get that far today. So in verse 14, pyrozite is a passive verb, and if we've learned anything about the passive yet, we identify that the subject is acted upon by the action. So someone is acting upon the subject, each individual of the larger group, to tempt them or to try them, to attempt to learn the nature or character of that individual through evaluation. They're receiving the action, if you will. It's being placed upon them to be tempted, to be tried. Someone is testing them, evaluating them. <clears throat> now what this means is that the individual being tested isn't one testing themselves. 
okay? We test ourselves sometimes when we're going to like a sporting event and we're competing. We train, we train, we train, and then we test ourselves against competitors. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that is actually testing us versus us testing ourselves, having disciplined ourselves and trained ourselves. <clears throat> As a passive verb, that's what parasitai identifies, that each one is acted upon by some source which is attempting to learn the character of each of the ones being tried. It gets kind of a little wordy in here. Okay? But each one is being acted upon by a source which is attempting to learn its character through evaluation. That's what's happening. Now James explains how it happens. Question. Go ahead. But um, is it is the person testing is always the one trying to learn their character, or can there be someone testing it for someone else to learn their character? The word would indicate that the person testing is the one who's trying to learn the character because it's part of the definition. But I don't think it's exclusionary because that the the one actually performing the test, like say there's a demon, okay, yeah. that and, and there's indication in scripture that there are demons assigned to specific believers to do certain things, um, and some people believe we got a guardian angel and a, and then a demon, and we got the little two guys on the shoulder thing, right? I don't think it's completely unfounded in scripture, not the two guys on the shoulder, but but the concept that we have spiritual forces around us on both sides of the line that are trying to do things, I mean, and we'll see that through this verse, I believe. Uh, not this week, but next week, or next session. <clears throat> but, so it may be that that demon is attempting to learn the character or test the character for the larger whole, but he's the one applying the temptation to show it. The larger whole, Satan and company, yeah. So, it, it may be a test so that they can learn in the future what to do, or that kind of thing. It's a good question. That would be my best answer at this point. So if there's more that you want to know, we can look at it later. No, I don't know. I just thought that. That was originally being God, but God doesn't need to learn Yeah, and it, it implies in the definition that the one tempting, or the one testing, is the one attempting to learn the character. But it's a good question. Okay, the Greek order is entirely different than the English order. Um, so you'll have to actually skip the middle part of your verse in English to get to the end. Um, and let me see. Can someone read for us just verse 14? Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Okay, so that carried away and enticed by his own lust part, that's the part that we're not going to get to tonight. No, the carried away and enticed, that's what we're not going to get to tonight. This part is the by his own lust. Okay, so just take that carried away and enticed, lock it up, put it away for next time. Put little ellipsis there, those three dots. Each one is enticed under his own lust or by his own lust. That's what we're going to focus on tonight. Um, that's the Greek order, and so it places emphasis on that first. <clears throat> so the order of the Greek actually goes hupotes, idios, epithumios, and literally it means under the own lust. Now, hupa is a preposition which means under, and it has the, sounds like something else? Hoopa, yeah. It, it has the concept of either stabilizing something, and it can be used to like be a support for something, like we're supposed to remain under trials, and in that sense we support the trial above us, versus it crushing us or us side-skirting it. 
Um, so it carries that connotation with it that it's supporting something. Understand. When you understand something, you're standing under in support of it, um, in agreement with it, not necessarily personal agreement, but you have understood the concept and so it's supported within your mind. That's, that's the concept of, of hoopa. Now, when it's used with a genitive or ablative case, which it is here with taste idios, those two words in the middle, it actually identifies agency. Okay, this is a secret agent, right? It is the agent by which something is accomplished. Okay, it's not a tool, it's an agent. It's an acting force that operates, that shows that hoopa taste idios is an agent that works and does something. Okay? That'll make a little more sense as we get going, or we keep going here. Um, but it means under, literally, and teis idios literally means the one's owned, which again makes no sense in English apart from what we would say further elaboration regarding idios. Idios is not idiot, okay? Um, the Bible says, call no man a fool. It does, however, identify men as morons, either in God's eyes or, mor or morons in man's eyes. So you're a moron in either capacity. Either in God's eyes or in man's eyes. Those are our two categories. People are all morons. That's biblical. You can say that. I wouldn't say it with bad motive, though, because that would be sin. Hoopa. I say hoopa because of a bad practice I picked up. You had it pronounced. Is that hoopa? That, that's hoopa. When I, when I spell with the H, that's hoopo. That's just part of the learning my transliteration pronunciation thing. Yeah. And the only reason I don't put AH is because it changes it to an alpha instead of an omicron. So it's a totally different letter to put AH. So it's a soft O. I, I do oftentimes say hoopo, though. And I, I don't know why I picked that up, but it's hoopa. Yeah, and oppo is the same thing. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Taste idios, literally means the one's own, and it comes from that word idios. Idios refers to that which belongs to an individual and which is peculiar to that individual. And by peculiar, I don't mean odd, I mean specific and unique to that individual. That is Jamin's Bible. We all have Bibles, but that one is peculiar to Jamin. It is his. It's got his notes in it, it's got his names in it, it's got his little doodles in it from Ginnamai, it's got all that stuff in it. Right. Except that that's not idios. Actually, that word is in that phrase. But it's the same concept. It's actually that's God. God's reserved for Himself a people for His own possession, and His own is in there. That's that idios. But possession is that word for peculiar. That I'm just saying. Out. God. Right. It's specific. You're you're right. Sorry, that was a side note. Again, free charge. <coughs> The exegetical dictionary in the New Testament, which is one of many dictionaries that I would recommend using, um, I say use every dictionary you can because the dictionaries have to kind of be harmonized themselves to understand the, the definitions um, without getting too much into that because it's kind of frustrating at times. But the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament defines idios in this way. It says, one's own, peculiar to, or belonging to an individual. So you get that concept of, concept of a specific thing that is peculiar to an individual. It is theirs. It is their own. When um, when the Bible uses the phrase um, I forget what it is exactly, but there's verses that talks about um, living with your wife in an understanding way. It's using this phrase actually of 
Ilias Gunaika, which understand Gunaika's woman, not wife. There's no actual Greek word for wife. It's always woman, and it's each man with his own woman. He has a specific, unique woman. Um, whether you believe in that specific unique woman being prepared before they were married, or that that woman is specific because it's his now that they're married, or they're together. Um, it's not giving credence to either of those. It's just identifying that specific peculiarity. Women are peculiar to me. Oh. <laughs> Idios identifies that an individual possesses a specific object or person, and that the object or person is unique to that individual. They own it, it is theirs. It's coupled with epithumios in James 1.14, so we have taste idios epithumios, the one's own specific lust, the one's own peculiar lust, or the, the peculiar to lust. Um, epithumios is a genitive noun, which refers to desire, that overrides rational thought process. This is going to be evident when you take that definition, you plug it into your history, at times where you saw that you knew you shouldn't have done something, but you were tempted to do it, you will see that your logic was overridden by your desire to do it. If you don't see that, read Romans 7, because the Apostle Paul says that all humans go through that same process. That which we choose not to do, that we've identified logically we will not do, and we've made a specific statement not to do, we end up doing. It's the sin nature that's within us. The part of that sin nature is this epithumios, the lust or the desire of the sin nature. So epithumios refers to, we translate it as lust, and it refers to desire that overrides rational thought process, or logical or typical thought process. <clears throat> it typically represents desires for either morally or culture, culturally forbidden objects, which are consumed apart from moral, ethical, or cultural consciences, or the logic which would argue against its consumption. In other words, we know it's bad for us, we know we're not supposed to have it, but we want it. And knowing that it's bad for us, knowing that we're not supposed to have it, knowing that it doesn't do any good for us, doesn't keep us from wanting it and doesn't keep us sometimes from acting for it. That is what I mean when I say, in other words, it is a felt desire rather than a thought desire. There's two types of desires that God has set up in Scripture. One is a, a desire that is based upon a plan. That God says, this is, what I, this is the outcome I desire, this is the plan I will implement. It's a thought-out desire. The other is a almost... instant gratification kind of concept is that ooh that looks good that sounds good I want that I feel that I feel the desire for it and I don't care what the logic is I don't care whether it's wrong I feel like I want it it's the felt desire versus a thought desire it's not planned out it's not prepared for it is an impulsive type of situation that actually may take an hour two hours three days to act on sometimes longer but it's an impulse in that sense of a feeling rather than a thought that's planning a desired outcome Question? I was thinking about that that definition, and that seems to weigh love. Our culture, if you the movies, you know, that's how they define love is kind of this magic that it can't be helped or you can't stop it, sort of, versus love being a choice. Yeah, and you know, I didn't, I didn't even catch like that. The difference between love and lust, perhaps, or one, you know, one, one is I choose this. Yeah, I almost I missed know, it. I was just thinking. It's a great point. That definition does seem to completely summarize the human concept of love versus the divine concept. I didn't even catch that concept, but you're you're exactly right. It does kind of have that mystical magical thing. Ten points.
Negative heresy for you. <laughs> he says fun stuff. You say fun stuff too. I know you got a negative heresy. That's that's good for use next time you're heretical. Just pull the heresy coupon. So the difference between epithumios and desire, lust and desire, lust is that felt desire. Desire may be a, a desire for something, but it's based upon a, a thought out process or a plan to accomplish it. I desire to have a new car at some point in my life. If I want to actually make that desire a reality, I will have to plan out. Now, if I get a credit card that allows me to buy a new car, and I go buy a car lot and say, Woohoo, look at that Mustang, I'm going for that thing, that's lust. That's the concept, is that it's a feeling, it's not planned, it's not controlled, it's not self-disciplined, it's not brought forth through a men mental thought process at all. It's brought forth through a desire to consume. So in that sense, it's a felt desire versus a thought desire. So I'll use that term felt desire from here on out. I don't think I say thought desire. But that's what I mean by felt desire, and it might get a little confusing when we get to some of the other slides coming up. So keep that definition in mind. So the combination of taste idios with epithumios creates the understanding that each individual has a specific felt desire which is unique to him and which contradicts his moral, ethical, or cultural conscience, compelling him beyond logical thought and evaluation for the purpose of satisfying or satiating that desire. The combination of taste idios, one's own lust, one's own specific lust, one's own peculiar lust, creates the understanding that each individual has a specific felt desire which is unique to him and which contradicts his moral, ethical, or cultural con conscience. I guess I should say which can contradict, because choice actually can stop this, but which can contradict his moral, ethical, or cultural conscience compelling him beyond logical thought and evaluation for the purpose of satisfying or consuming acting upon his desire. If God word is not God's word is not amazing to you yet, just wait. If you feel like it's not relevant today, just wait. And I know we don't really have that kind of thought process in this group, but if you have someone that comes up to you and says the Bible is not relevant, I'm, you're going to get a tool to look at and be able to tell them and predict things to them about how they've acted in the past, which I guess is really a prediction, but without knowing how they've acted in the past, you'll be able to identify what they've done in the past, how they've interacted, if you understand this concept of one's own lust. And you will show them through that that the Bible is relevant. Unless you're an evil genius and you just want to use it against them. Okay, I don't recommend that approach. Okay. Some of you guys are looking at me like I've tried that approach. <laughs> Maybe that's just conviction. I don't know. <laughs> An evil genius? I wouldn't go that route. It'd be kind of fun, but <laughs> there's that little little guy on the shoulder. <laughs> Get off of there, little buddy. <laughs> little non-buddy. Alright, I'm going to say it again because it's a long sentence and it's not a run-on sentence. I crafted it specifically not to be. I had a couple of ands in there that I got rid of, alright? Thank you. The combination of taste idios with epithumios creates the understanding 
that each individual has a unique specific felt desire which is unique to him and which contradicts or can contradict his moral, ethical, or cultural conscience compelling him beyond logical thought and evaluation for the purpose of satisfying his desire. Now, the conscience, let's talk about that real quick. The conscience is programmable, it's part of our human soul. Okay, our morals, our ethics, cultural obligations, those are all programmed into our conscience. Our conscience is a part of our noose, it's our active mind, the Greek word is noose. It's what we operate from, our worldview resides in that concept of our conscience and our noose. Um, I think it's interesting that the Bible uses the word noose because the English word noose deals with the whole rope thing, right? And what does it do? It strangles something. And if you think about it in a sense, your morals, your ethics, and your culture, cultural obligations are strangled by your conscience, by your active mind to hold on to them as operational protocols. So what I mean by that is that your conscience is programmable based upon your moral convictions, your ethical convictions, your cultural convictions, which is why we can have a far left liberal and a far right conservative because the program of the conscience is dependent upon our evaluation process and how we depend upon and accept things as being true or right. Okay, so the individual felt desire is what James identifies as being the agent, remember that secret, secret agent concept, the one that's behind the scenes operating and acting, under which each individual faces trial. Now we're going to focus from this point on with that word trial on being the concept of, of what James, or what the translators call temptation, in that sense of trying someone versus a circumstance which is trying, um, or a trial or tribulation in that sense. But we'll tie in here, and I, I want to give it to you now because I, I want you to be able to forget about it for a while and come back to it, let your brain work on it in the background. We're going to come back to the, the statement that even the circumstances that we face as trials and tribulations are designed to point to our, our own individual lust pattern, our own individual lust. I can't say pattern yet because you haven't learned that part. Our own individual lust is where our trials, the circumstances we interact with that are trying, attack us. Okay? Same as the uh, antagonistic attacks towards rebelling from what we know is right consciously, or consciously to this epithumios of our own lust, um, that is what we're going to be focusing on more in this next part, is that temptation concept that we've kind of been familiar with as a trial. Okay, so each man's trials will be directed towards the felt desire, which is specific to that individual. Whether circumstances which are encountered, or antagonistic attacks designed to, to attempt to learn the character of the individual through evaluation, the direction of the attack will be towards the specific lust of each individual. That makes sense, right? That's our vulnerability. That's our weakness. If we've got a castle, what are you going to attack? The weakest point, that gate. Okay, You're not going to try and drill a hole through the wall. That's 16, 18 inches of stone. You're going to go for the gate because it's the weakest point. Satan and company, I guarantee, know your own lust. They know your specific lust pattern. They know your specific lust. They know where to attack you. Or oh, keep slipping in. You're ahead of the game then. <laughs> See, that's where we're going. But ten, ten points. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> they know it. I can't reveal that either. Okay. <clears throat> so the attacks are based, the trials are based, and the rebellious attacks, antagonistic attacks towards rebellion are based towards our lust, the desire that we have, that felt desire that we have. Now, in order to adequately understand 
the carried away and enticed part of verse 14, the necessity arises for us to study the epithumios concept, or the lust of each individual, the lust which is uh, specific to each individual. So the focus of tonight's study from this point on will be to accomplish that end or that purpose, um, to understand epithumios in a better light. So once we understand that, we'll be able to be better equipped to understand the concept of um, being carried away and enticed by it. Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to focus on side note number one, side study number one, tesidios epithumios. This isn't a note. It's a side study. As has been identified, taste idios epithumios is a reference to a specific felt desire, impulsive desire, which is unique to an individual. This lust is a part of the sin nature within each human, and it is a part of the natural tendency within each human to operate outside of the blueprints of God's plan, which consequences or is in consequence sin. The lust that belongs to each of us, our own specific lust, is a part of the natural tendency, the natural sin nature that we have within each of us, that operates outside of God's blueprints of his plan and produces sin, or consequences sin, the consequences of which, of our sin nature, is the production of sin. To be clear, sin is derived from the word hamartia, and it is a verb which means to miss the mark. This is great when the Olympics are going. Because in Olympics, there's inevitably the shooting range, or curling, or shoot, basketball. But this is actually an archery term, is hamartia. And it means to sin, which means to miss the mark. The bullseye is the mark. And we may have talked about this before, I'll give you a refresher course on it. But the bullseye is the mark, and when they miss, it's, oh, you sinned two degrees to the left, or two inches left, and so far down or up. It's that you have missed the mark, and this is your, where you are in reference to it. You have not hit it. So that's where, what sin is. It, we, we use that word sin, and oftentimes it gets defined as you know doing wrong things. And that's true. That's sinful. But why is doing wrong things sin? It's because it misses the mark that God has set, the standard that God has set. Now, the mark which is being missed is the mark which God has established. God alone is righteous. Therefore, God alone can give you clear what that mark of righteousness is. From the word daikaiosune, which refers to a quality of being a quality of being conformed to the specifications of a plan. In other words, an attribute that you possess of being in conformity to a blueprint. Jamin, this will be great for you. As an engineer, to, to have this kind of concept, it's awesome. It's as simple as a blueprint. God has said this is a specification for what justice and righteousness is. You hit that or you miss the mark. <clears throat> so being in agreement or in conformity to that means that you're acting righteously. Being in disagreement or nonconformity to that means you're acting unrighteously. You've missed the mark. <clears throat> God alone is the one who can establish this because he alone is righteous. He alone is just. He alone is love. He alone has all the power, uh, has all power, not all the power. <clears throat> so he's the only one that can actually establish this, which is why we need to focus on letting him dictate what we are supposed to do. If we're supposed to live righteously, we have to be able to obey the one who righteously can say, this is what you're supposed to do in this moment. How do we handle a situation righteously? We have to be dependent upon God in our relationship with him. We have to know what the Bible says. And that's the, the verse um, comes to mind, I have hidden thy word 
I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So that same concept is that if we don't know what God's word says, we can't implement it into our lives. Now, God can still use his word without us knowing what it is. And we'll go back to Bible study later and say, hey, God just did that last week, two weeks ago. <clears throat> God's the one that can establish righteousness, which is why we have to be dependent upon him to produce righteous deeds, to produce good works in that sense. We can't do it on our own because we don't have that judgment of what is right or what is just apart from God. <clears throat> the plan of God, which is perfectly just or right, is the mark which is to be conformed to. Failure to conform to God's plan is a failure to possess the quality of righteousness. This is identified as missing the mark of righteousness. And missing the mark is failure to conform to the specifications of God's plan. Saying the same thing a couple times in different ways here. Okay, if you miss the mark, you're not righteous. If you hit the mark, you're righteous. And you haven't sinned. Because sin, it means to miss the mark. <clears throat> David the psalmist wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This doesn't mean she had an affair. It doesn't mean she was immoral or uh, fornicated before marriage. This is a reference not to a moral conception by David's mother, but rather to the nature of iniquity, which David was imparted upon being conceived, gestated, and birthed. I don't know if gestated is a word. It didn't come up in my spell check as being inaccurate, but I like it. This is a reference in Psalm 51, 5 to David being imparted the sin nature, or what is termed here a nature of iniquity. Iniquity is sin. It's being full of sin, actually, of being full of missing the mark. It was given to David upon his conception, gestation, and birth. So when he came into the world and was born, he was already a sinner prior to birth. It was at the point of conception. Now we'll see a little bit about why that is. Um, and if you're arguing with me in your head, hopefully we'll clear some of that up. Jesus experienced the virgin birth. And by this, he bypassed the iniquitous conception, or the passing down of the sin nature. Uh, there's like major verbiage going on here, I know. It is through the male that the sin nature is passed on genetically. Hence the necessity of the virgin birth. If Joseph had been the biological father of Jesus, Jesus would have been born with the sin nature. That's a problem for us, because now he can no longer be the Messiah. The sin nature had to be bypassed. Now Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, I got that little asterisk right there, and my note on the bottom says, Because all sinned is better literally understood as, Upon which all missed the mark. The word because isn't actually in there. It's epi, which means upon, or upon this statement, upon this thing that supports this next statement, all have sinned. We haven't performed the action of missing the mark prior to birth. But upon the concept that through Adam came sin, and in death, being found with spiritual deadness, spread, uh, that spiritual deadness spread to all men through that male seed. Again, you bypass the male seed, you bypass the sin nature. Jesus is the only person that's ever been born trichotomous, body, soul, and spirit. Adam and Eve were created that way, we were all born body and soul because, just like David, we were born in iniquity. <clears throat> so being a sinner starts at conception. 
it hit me, if you look at the chromosome makeup of the DNA structure for the male, we've got that XY chromosome. And the girls have what? XX, right? Why is there a difference? And I'm not saying... I'm not saying that God originally created it to be XX for the male too. But it would seem interesting to me that the major difference is that X or Y that dictates actually the gender of the, the person. It seems odd to me that that one is different. And I'm not saying there's any scientific data. I'm not saying there's any biblical data. It just was a thought that fleeted into my head. And I said, oh, that's weird. And I sat there about five minutes pondering it. Okay, I just know, I'm not saying there's support for it. I'm not saying it is that that's where the same nature is established. It right. just seems funny to me. Well, or they don't pass it down, which scripturally is accurate. Because they would also be born body and soul only, because they had a father. So if that XY, if that Y chromosome possesses the sin nature quality, or is the, the chromosome in which the sin nature is passed down, then bypassing the male would have meant no XY chromosome in Jesus in that sense, from a male. Now I'm assuming he had, well, he either didn't have an XY chromosome, this would prove it. If we could find out whether Jesus' DNA possessed an XY chromosome, we would have the answer to this postulation. What about animals? They've got, they have the same chromosome difference between them. Yeah, they have Do they? I'm not sure. Me either. It's a good question. Like I said, I haven't looked into it. It fleeted into my head. It was an interesting thought. But I'm not saying it's biblical or scientifically supported. Robin? I think if he would have been convicted of sin, or like uh, judged for sin, that it was passed down to the woman? Probably not because of the headship given to the male. Oh, okay. And it seems like that is more part of the reason. Well, okay. But, yeah. Yeah. Right. Maybe that's why boulder are a lot harder to deal with than cows. Yeah, I know it's an interesting concept. I'd love, to, I'd love to look into the X Y concept. Yeah. That's a part of your epithumios. It is. <laughs> It's like something you would get a cream for. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's a bad epithumius. <laughs> <laughs> you got an epithumius on the epidermis. <laughs> All right, so the XY thing, again, that's not a part of the study. It just was interesting to me because it, the, and there's got to be some way to answer that question um, besides testing Jesus' DNA because we can't do that, obviously. And we can't find any of his children either to test, so don't believe that lie either. All right. So all humans born of non-virgin births, anyone besides Jesus, receive this in nature through the male seed, which I personally am postulating as that, that Y chromosome. Not dogmatic on it, just saying I like it enough that I'm going to say that's what it is for now and give you the disclaimer that I don't really know that for sure. Okay? I won't, I won't fight over it. I believe certain things because I like it. It makes logical sense to me, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's taught in Scripture. Okay. And if I were to be given evidence otherwise, it would change. Just for the record. Okay. So all humans born of non-virgin births receive the sin nature through the male seed. 
According to the Anatomy of Humanity, which we studied back in like part 7, I think, or verse 7, man was created with body, with soul, and with spirit, trichotomous, created that way, by God's plan. Ooh, key words, God's plan, hang on to those. Because of the fall, man became spiritually dead and was found wanton or lacking and desiring spiritual life. Cross-reference John 3, Nicodemus' fireside chat with Jesus, especially verses 4 to 6, where Jesus tells him, you must be born of the water and of the spirit. Water referencing the, the body and soul birth, or the physical birth. Spirit referencing the human spirit reborn within the male. Or within the man, not male. Male and female, all right? That's both. Now, <clears throat> this is sin because it misses the mark of God's plan of tri a trichotomous human. God originally created, through plan and design, trichotomous humanity. So if we don't have a spirit when we are born, we are already sinners because we are missing the mark of God's plan. we got to start thinking of sin as missing the mark of righteousness. When we start thinking of it as lying or stealing or doing those kind of things, which are sinful, but that's not the definition of sin. <clears throat> a dichotomous human is, sin, is a sinner in the sense that he has missed the mark being not in conformity with God's plan. Man was created trichotomous. Lacking economy means you're sinful. <laughs> Emily's trying to figure out how to call me out on that one or whether or not to. No, actually I was just thinking, so when Adam and Eve sinned, they were dead. Yeah. Because they spirit them. died, is what it was said. Died? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and the phrase "dying you shall die" is the the what I call the threat or the promise of God that in the day that you eat the fruit, you will surely die. In English, it's Hebrew. It's dying instantaneously. You will die in the future. Two words for die: one's um, instant, and one is future death. And we would understand that the instant death would be spiritual, based on the trichotomy community, and the future death would be the separation of the soul from the body, physical death, what we know soul to eternal abode either in heaven or hell or ever. Without a spirit, the soul doesn't make it to heaven. But yes. <clears throat> okay. So, the lack of a human spirit upon birth renders the human incapable not only of understanding God, understanding God's doctrine, understanding God's principles or how he's got this world or how he wants his world to work, not this world, because his world system is different than this one. But it also renders the human incapable of performing deeds which are in conformity to God's plan, which are righteous. Because God has specified that those deeds are accomplished through a partnership between the Holy Spirit and the human spirit working together to accomplish God's will upon earth. In other words, no man can do righteousness on his own. The Bible clearly teaches that. There's none righteous, no, not one. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the iniquity of us all was placed on Christ Jesus. Started singing a song halfway through there because there was a song that I learned when I was in children's church back when I was growing up. And I had ba ba do ba ba in it. <clears throat> Catchy song. That just probably stuck in my head for the rest of the night. The lack of a human spirit upon birth renders the human incapable of performing deeds which are righteous in conformity to God's plan. 
because God has outlined and designed those deeds to flow from the model of humanity where God initiates, just like the role with the angels and responsibility with the angels, where God says, do this, and the angels do it. That's how we're supposed to work. God initiates, we trust and obey. Because God has specified that those deeds are accomplished through a partnership between the Holy Spirit and the human spirit working together to accomplish God's will upon earth, without a spirit, we cannot perform righteous deeds. So as humans, then, being born, we have a natural tendency to operate in manners which are not in agreement with God's plan or design. Because we can't. The Holy Spirit can't work with us. The Holy Spirit can convict us, can compel us, can bring us to the point of recognizing we need a Savior, but He cannot operate within us. Not because the, God doesn't have the power to do that, or the sovereignty or the, the decision-making concept of that, but because He has set this design up and said, this is my righteous plan. This is my design. These are the blueprints. This is how things are going to work. And that's based upon His character of being just and loving, so He will not deviate from His plan because the plan was set up perfectly the first time. Which is amazing when you think about him creating Satan and knowing that Satan was going to, or Lucifer was going to fall, and then creating man to solve the angelic conflict and knowing that man was going to fall. And all these things just bring us back to a place where we recognize that we have an infinite God who is unbelievably amazing. <clears throat> As humans, we have a natural tendency to operate in manners which are not in agreement with God's plan or design <clears throat> from birth. Now, this natural tendency is innate to our body and our soul. Okay, the sin nature resides in the, in the body and in the soul. It's a part of our personality. It's a part of our body. The body has desires. Okay? We combine these two and we get the nickname or the term the flesh. When we say someone's operating according to the flesh, we're talking about them operating according to the sin nature, which has that body and soul concept. <clears throat> the sin nature as a part of our body and soul is known as the flesh. So within the flesh, humans possess different degrees or compositions of desire, lust, epithumios, as well as natural tendencies towards either rebellion, do badism, or asceticism, do goodism. Okay, you're either a do-gooder or a do-badder. A goody two-shoes or a teacher, he did something. Okay, and if you're goody two-shoes, two -shoes, you're the one telling the teacher that what someone did. Okay, <clears throat> we're, we're getting into the anatomy of the sin nature here. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, so why does the flesh refer to the soul? How does that make sense for the flesh to refer to the soul and not the body? The term sarkia, which is from the Greek where we get flesh from, is different from the where we get body from. Uh, and they have similar stems. Like the word for body, I believe, is sark or sarks. I can't remember which one at this point or right now. Um, but they have a difference between their operation. The body in Sark or Sarks is ref referencing the physical carcass, the form of, of the body. The flesh incorporates the moving active form of the body, which has to have a soul in it. So Sarkia, or that concept of a flesh, has to have a soul to move the body. Now that's part of it. Scripture harmonizes that way all across the board. Um, it's a good question. Do you have something to add, Jamin? I just, I, just to analogy so so is it in that when an animal like say when a lion eats a person it's not sin because they have a body but no soul they don't know better human eats They're, a human they have the soul and the body is that so they, they have a conscience they know there's a conscience they, they have a moral conscience yeah 
that and, and I think that's the difference together with the body that makes obeying that I, I might be making this all the, the reason I'm hesitant is because yeah. while I'm not necessarily saying that animals have a soul there's indication that they have a thought process in scripture which means that they have to have some sort of personality um, I can actually look at my dogs and see the sin nature patterns within them now whether that's valid or not I know that I'm just imposing that upon them because of their behavior. I mean, you can clearly tell what their sin natures are. They're all under the curse. Yeah, all, and all animals are under the curse. But does that mean they have a sin nature? We don't know. I mean, I suppose so, because the curse wasn't a part of God's original design, which means if they're under the curse, then they are sinning or missing the mark. They're under a general curse instead of a specific right. individualized curse. Right, they don't have a sin nature in the sense that we do, like the unique lust. So that was why I was hesitant. With your analogy, it's because yeah, of that debate yeah. between whether animals have soul or whether they're just a body that chemicals firing. Um, An instinct. Yeah. And I think they clearly make decisions. Whether those decisions are instinctual or not is what I think the argument comes down to. So are you saying to have a mind, a thought, that you have a soul? Uh, not you necessarily. If you have a soul, you've got a mind. But to have a personality in the sense of a suke or a soul is to have a personality, have that thought process, have that mind, the conscience that is developed and programmed. I don't know that I impose that upon animals. And I don't know that scripture teaches one way or the other, uh, at least that I've seen yet. And it may be in Hebrew, and that may be why I haven't looked there, because it's all weird looking. But. <laughs> so I'm. I'm, I don't think I'm getting at what you guys are postulating. I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I just but what I'm getting at is that the term flesh comes in with this concept of a body and a soul. And when you're acting according to the flesh, you're acting according to the things that the soul and the body together demand as the flesh, rather than acting according to your body. Because we have a... Well, actually, sexual sins are, and immoralities are sins against your own body, not your flesh. They're fleshly acts that sin against the body, and, and that's kind of where you can separate a little bit. So you're actually sinning against your body with sexual immorality, rather than sinning against your flesh. With your soul, with your flesh, you sin against the body. It's the flesh, which is the body and the soul, but it's sinning against your body. Right. So, so, like, so if I like, but like cutting yourself, following to. I, I think that's just paint hurting your body. I don't, I don't know. Well, the verse I was referencing was the one that talks about sexual immorality. We can do a side study on that later. And actually, not a, no, not according to the verse that we that I that are brought up and alluded to, because it says that sexual immorality is the only sin that sins against the body. That doesn't mean the body's not involved in other sins. It's pretty much if you're sinning, the body's around. Yeah. <laughs> just, you really can't get out of that. My soul wins. I mean, the, the worst you could do, the, the, the furthest you could go in this concept would be a dream state. And your body's inactive, but your mind is dreaming. In, inception, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
It's that it's that word think that needs to be observed. Okay. Did we did we did we satisfy the concept of the flesh versus the body? Enough. Enough. Not necessarily to convince or persuade, but enough to where you can see at least what I'm meaning by it. You don't have to necessarily agree with it. That'd be unrighteous, but that's fine. Not because I define righteousness, but because I've seen it. Look at me, I'm a dolphin. That's from that's from a movie. I forget what movie it is. <coughs> Alright. One of five, I know, seriously. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is our only science study tonight. Alright, within the flesh, humans possess varying compositions or degrees. Meaning that Jamin and, my, and I may have a similar lust desire, but we may have different degrees of that lust. Okay? Different depths of it. As well as natural tendencies towards either rebellion or asceticism. Doing good or doing bad. Asceticism, think goody two-shoes. Um, an, an ascetic thing is something that looks pleasant. That's why it's that term of asceticism, is doing things that are pleasant or nice or good. Do goody. Okay, the focus of James 1.14 is upon the lusts of the individual who is tested at the point or attacked at the point of their lusts in an attempt to learn the character of that individual through an evaluation. It's choppy, I know. All it's saying is that the point of attack in a trial or a test is at the sin nature, is at your lust, your area of lust. The way that the individual responds to the trial aimed at their lust is the revelation of his character. So in that a trial is attempting to learn the character of the individual, how one responds to the trial being placed upon it reveals that character. Okay, there are three basic types, and this is where, if you're getting tired, wake up. Okay, this is the best thing. Well, not the best thing. The best thing ever is the gospel message. But th this is one of the, the best things. And if you're going to deal with trials, you're going to deal with testing, you're going to deal with temptation, you need to know this as a believer. This is a basic that we have to understand about ourselves in order to stop this process of temptation. There are three basic types of lust within which all sin can be categorized. Yes, I said it. All sin can fit into one of these three categories. Prove me wrong. Pride of lifer, okay? You can you can categorize every sin into one of these three categories. Verse John two sixteen is where we get these categories. It says, "For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world." The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are our three categories. The lust of the flesh refers to, one, satisfaction of the five senses. Eyesight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. Okay, our five physical senses. Here's the other thing that it focuses on also. is the satiation or satisfaction of the emotions. In the sense that when you don't feel comfortable because you're wearing dress clothes, you want to feel comfortable. So it's that feeling concept that dictates what you do so that you go actually and change into sweatpants and a t-shirt or something that feels comfortable. 
It's that emotional kind of sense or that emotional feeling. Okay? Satisfaction of the senses and satiation of the emotions. The lust of the flesh is also known as sensuality, but it's not strictly sexual in nature. Rather, it focuses on satisfying the five senses as well as the emotions. <clears throat> Those with this lust pattern when they have been in trouble with their parents will have had a tendency to either cry or be disappointed that they hurt their parents or, or that their parents were disappointed in them. Okay, if that's you, I understand. <clears throat> those who have this lust or those who, who possess this lust have had a tendency in the past when their parents are reprimanding them or disciplining them or getting on to them for having done something they knew was wrong. Rather than being angry that the parents are talking to them, they will be disappointed and oftentimes cry, be disappointed to that point of crying because they've upset or hurt their parents. How do you determine that? Based on this. Because the senses and the emotions are, un are discomforted, if you will, by the thought, and there's actually another half of this that we're going to get to later, not tonight. But it's the concept that you're a people pleaser. Is that when you disappoint someone, it's uncomfortable. You couple that with the lust of the flesh and the disappointment, and you actually in, and that um, do-gooder that failed, and you actually get this concept of the the crying when you were told that you did something wrong. <clears throat> what if you were repentant? Yeah, what if that's it's, great. It's out of repentance. You might have the same reaction, but it's. Sorry, you did something wrong. You'll be sorry you did something wrong by being a do-gooder, but when you combine this one and the other one, it's not that you did something wrong that makes that causes the sorrow. It's that you disappointed your parents, and that they are upset with you. So it's not about what you did; it's about their 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 disfavor in you. Right. It's your response okay. to emotions, not to you. Right. <clears throat> And you see this more with the people pleaser than you do with the rebel. The rebel pretty much is going to spit in their face and say, I don't care, uh, to the extreme, obviously. Or just be like, well, you did this. They'll, they're going to fight it more rather than just, I'm sorry, you know. Okay. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> when you combine this lust of the flesh with that do-gooder, that's really where you get that kind of person that will be so hurt to the point that they're, they're upset that they've disappointed rather than they're upset for having done a wrong. And that's the, the difference between it. <clears throat> the lust of the eyes refers to consumption of physical goods, material objects. Uh, because of that, it's also known as materialism. Its focus is upon acquiring material objects for the sake of worship, enjoyment, or merely for the sake of possessing for no other reason. It's like, oh, I see that, I want that, got it. Oh, I see that, I want that, I got it. Question. I see why the wheels so, turning. Why does the lust of the eyes, what, how do you make the connection that that makes consumption of physical goods? Like, what are you basing that on? What are we seeing? We're seeing physical things. Uh -huh. I didn't get to get to this point in our study tonight because I didn't think we are going to have time. But when you look at Jesus' temptations, and it says that he was, what was the first temptation? Make this bread stone. You're hungry. Eat. Satisfy your senses. Then the second one, what was the second one? I can't remember right now. Someone help me out. Oh, yeah, the top of the temple and cast yourself down because the Bible says that the angels take care of you and not, not, no stone will hurt you. 
uh, paraphrasing again. And, and what was that? What the concept is that? Well, that's pride. We'll get there when we understand it because it's not Jesus' decision to do what he's going to do. It's God's decision. As a bond slave, Jesus is supposed to be submitted to God. So it's not up to him. It's not his ego that gets to determine what he does. <clears throat> and then the last one was look out at all that you can see and all that, that you have, I will give you. All that you can see, I will give you if you will just worship me. That's coupling here with this lust of the eyes concept is the consumption of physical goods, the, the desire to possess things. Doesn't really matter why. Okay, now, I'll get to that and hopefully when we get here. So now, what I just did was I gave you the answer to the understanding that Scripture ha says and the support for and the evidence for what Scripture says when it says that Jesus was tested in every way that we are. In the lust of the flesh, in the lust of the eyes, in the pride of life. In those three areas, he was tested. Now, we know he was tested in more incidences, but not in more areas because those are the three that the Scripture identifies. The pride of life refers to one, boosting one's own ego. And this is either internally or externally. Okay? If you're a rebel, if your natural tendency is to rebel and do your own thing, and you are a pride of lifer, you will externally boost your own ego. Because you're not worried about what people are going to think about whether you're bo boasting or not or boosting yourself up or not because you don't care. You're a rebel. You're actually going to boost your own ego externally. If you're a pride of lifer that is a do-gooder, you're... <laughs> it does, huh? And to some degree it can be. If, if you're a pride of lifer... Word of life, yeah. If you're a pride of lifer that is a do-gooder, you're going to do this internally. While externally, your actions appear to be good. But your preference, your favoritism will be for yourself inside. Number two, the pride of lifer refers to one who boasts one's own ego. So we've got boosting one's own ego, making one look better than others, and then boasts about one's ego. Not comparing to others, but just bringing out their own, um, how good they are and how great they are. Okay, again, the rebel will do that more externally. The do-gooder will do that more internally. Number three, thinking higher of oneself than is accurate. The Bible doesn't say to think lowly of yourself. It says don't think higher of yourself than you ought to. What that implies is that there is a degree of, or a level that, of which you are supposed to identify and view yourself. And it's within the strengths and the capabilities that God has given you in your relationship to him as a sinner saved by grace. We have to know who we are in order to actually do that. But a pride of lifer will think higher of themselves than is accurate. And this includes an entitlement mindset, meaning that, oh, I deserve that because I'm so good, or I deserve that just because I am. Okay, and ego is the, literally the word that means I am in Greek. It also includes a self-favored priority mindset, a mindset or a thought process, a set of thoughts that work together to say that, oh, I'm better than her or I'm better than him. Okay, all these things are pride-related. Now, it doesn't mean if you've thought that, that you're a pride of lifer. Not one instance of these shows that. Now, <clears throat> the pride of life is also known as egoism. Um, I prefer pride of life or, or pride just because egoism is kind of a weird word for us to figure out, but it's also known as egoism. And it focuses upon stroking or satisfying the individual's ego, externally or internally, promoting the individual publicly and privately, and or, usually both. And each of these can be manifest in reality or in the, the pride of lifer's mentality. Okay, so it's either vi visible physically or mentally. If it's, visible, if it's mentally, you're going to see it physically if you know what to look for. All sin can be categorized into one of these three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
So every instance of sin can put put into one of these areas. Now, when I talk about each one's individual sin or lust, that's where we get this lust pattern concept. Is that each individual has a dominant lust pattern. A lust pattern is an is evidenced behavior is an evidenced behavioral pattern which reveals dominant behavior towards one of the three categories. In other words, when you confess your sins, and you it, do do this for a week, okay, and, and don't do it with anyone else. Just if you recognize that you confess a sin and you say, oh, you know what, I thought more highly of myself than I had to. Oh, you know what, I satisfied my senses when I shouldn't have. Or I disobeyed God in this and I, you know, I should have spent that money to serve God in some other way and I just bought this or whatever. Write down what you confessed for a whole week. Do this. And, <clears throat> and analyze it at the end of the week. And you'll see a pattern come to surface of either lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life. Now, it may take time to develop an understanding of what each of these categories, what, what sins fit into each of these categories. Lust of the flesh, again, is satisfying of the senses. And the emotions, lust of the eyes, is desire for, for physical consumption, possessing physical things, and pride of life is that ego boosting. You'll see a pattern, and you should be able to see it now if you look back at yourself. <clears throat> but if you do that experiment for a week, you'll see a pattern arise. <clears throat> So you have a dominant lust pattern that is evident in your behavior and mindset which prefers one of these three categories of sin. Lust of the flesh or sensualism, lust of the eyes or materialism, and pride of life or egoism. Now behavior and mindsets, okay, just a disclaimer. There, there are seven different mindsets that God has set up. That God has set, not set up himself, but there are mindsets that God says that we just operate from. So we may not actually have committed an actual act of sin other than possessing this mindset that dictates how we view things or that kind of thing. Um, how many of you guys have, well, don't even answer this question, but if, if you've ever had an attitude of just annoyance, and you've been annoyed by something and that you don't fix it and you don't change your attitude and it becomes a mindset, then you go to sleep that after that day of being annoyed by everything, you wake up and the next morning, no matter what happens, it's just annoying. That's a mindset. It's a mindset that is set upon this concept of annoyance that now when you look at it, everything's annoying. Or when you're angry and you just fix your eyes and you focus on one focal point, that's a mindset of I'm going to be angry. Okay? There's different actions that produce these mindsets, but it's a thought process versus an actual physical action of sin, such as rebelling and you know, lying or stealing or that kind of thing. Okay? We may not have an action to confess. We may have to confess a mindset and um, understand that we have to confess our sin to be in a relationship with God that's growing and active and thriving. So your actions and your historical actions reveal a pattern which reflects your dominant lust pattern. This is the area in which you are most vulnerable to attack and are most often found defeated by trial. Satan and company know this. They know where to put, point the, um, the ammo at. They know where to, to attack you. They know where to tease you and entice you out to sin. They know where to allow or where to bring about trials that will actually appeal to this lust pattern that you have. Now, if you know what it is, you can combat it. You can doesn't mean you will. You got to choose to. <clears throat> it's within the specific specific lust pattern which you uniquely possess that trials and testing will be aimed, whether circumstance based or lust based. Again, but each one is tempted under his own specific lust. Next session, we'll see that that tempting under your own specific lust carries you away and entices you. Okay, And you can see that you kind of just float off, even though logically you're saying, I shouldn't be doing this. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I just want it. Okay? 
That's the process that we're going to get to next time we get a chance to study Ginnemai. And this is the process that we will, that James identifies occurs, knowing it will allow us to actually stop it and interact with it so that we can get to a point where the potential not to sin in a temptation is there. Or the potential is already there, but the probability is there, I guess I should say. <clears throat> so there it is tonight. Thanks for sticking with us. I know it was long questions. I know I see the hand.